President Biden already hitting some bumps in the road. Isn't that what he's trying to fix? The lead starts right now. Today, he's taking his multi-trillion dollar proposal to the American people with promises of transforming the economy and lifting millions out of poverty. But there is already some pushback and very little wiggle room in the 50-50 Senate. Let me out. Fresh new CNN polls showing how eager Americans are to get vaccinated and get back to normal. Plus, a mystery attack with an alleged invisible energy wave. People falling ill near the White House. Who might be behind it? That's coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead. And on his 100th day in office, President Biden hitting the road to promote his ambitious and quite expensive new economic plans. Any moment, he's landing in Gwinnett County, Georgia, suburban Atlanta, with the First Lady after meeting with former President Jimmy Carter. The Bidens will then hold a rally aimed at selling the American people on his nearly $4 trillion worth of new proposals. This is part of what the White House is calling the Getting America Back on Track Tour. Rallying public support will be crucial for the White House, given that today, just hours after his first address to a joint session of Congress last night, Mr. Biden is already facing pushback, not just from Republicans, but also from members of his own party. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us in Duluth, Georgia. And Caitlin, what are we expecting to hear from President Biden at this rally this evening. Well, Jake, first I should say the White House is not surprised by the pushback they are getting from Republicans. They were not exactly expecting them to embrace uh, these trillions in spending that you're seeing President Biden roll out, even though he was trying to make the case in a way to blunt their criticism last night, talking about the jobs they would create. And so I think here tonight, what you're going to hear from the president uh, just shortly at this drive and rally, notice you don't see people behind me. They are in their cars as these rallies that Biden has done during the pandemic. Everyone has stayed in their cars. But what he's going to be talking about is the way that he wants to transform America with these plans. They are big and they are a lot of money, but that is the point. And I don't think President Biden is shying away from that when he's making these arguments, saying that following the pandemic and the economic devastation that came after that. This is what he believes America needs injected to it, not just as a form of that COVID relief that we saw them get passed with only Democratic support earlier this year. He is saying that what was revealing from the economic or from the pandemic, what that revealed was just how fragile so many Americans economic stability is. And so he wants to change that by really changing the way that you think about government and the role of the government in education and childcare and paid family leave, really, in so many ways that people live their lives. And so expect him to sell it in that way here to Georgia voters in just a matter of hours. But we should also know, Jake, this is not the only stop that the president is going to make. He'll be in Pennsylvania tomorrow. The vice president will be in Ohio tomorrow. And then next week, they are also going to be making stops, as well as the first lady and the second gentleman and other top cabinet officials trying to really build support for this plan out in the country if they're not going to get it in Washington. And Caitlin, uh, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is is also uh, expressing concerns like the Republicans are about the the price tag on these new four trillion dollars worth of proposals. Is the White House ultimately prepared to compromise to get Manchin on board, to get Republicans on board? 
I think they say that they are willing to compromise. What that actually looks like, it, it still remains to be seen because there have been areas where President Biden has talked about wanting to listen to what these lawmakers propose. He even said it last night. He said, this is why I'm unveiling it here tonight before we get deep into the details so I can hear what lawmakers have to say. But in other aspects, as he did with his COVID relief bill, he said there are just some aspects that he's not willing to bargain on. And so that's going to be a big question facing them because you're right. It is not just Republicans who are pushing back on this. It's some of those moderate Democrats, people like Senator Manchin, who say, if you want to spend this much money, it's going to have a, to have a lot of scrutiny in Congress first, because he's looking at other aspects, the way the economy is picking back up, looking at those jobless numbers and asking if this is something that we need. And so this is going to be a big debate. It is far from over, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins in Duluth, Georgia. Thank you so much. And joining us now to discuss this all is the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine. Governor DeWine, thanks so much for having uh, for for coming on today, with you, Jake. I, I, I want to uh, get your reaction uh, to what we're hearing from President Biden. These ambitious uh, four trillion dollars uh, in new uh, spending proposals. He's hoping that can garner some bipartisan support. Was there anything you heard in his agenda that you, as a Republican governor, uh, can get behind? And how much spending numerically uh, are you willing to support? Well, Jake, I'm going to leave that up to the senator's representatives. I spent 20 years there, and I'm, of course, governor now. But let me just make a comment. Uh, I think there's a bipartisan bill, a truly bipartisan bill, uh, to be had here. I don't think there's any doubt that we've neglected infrastructure uh, in this country uh, for a long time. So I think Republicans understand that. Democrats understand it. I think a focus on a bill that is truly focused on infrastructure uh, and you know, not as much money. I think there's clearly a bill that Republicans uh, can support. I know, you know, we're focused here in Ohio on 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 infrastructure. Uh, we've started in the area of broadband, uh, the area of sewers, water. I mean, these are just basic things that we simply have to do. So the the new definition of infrastructure that the White House is using that includes infrastructure support for workers is how they they look at it. Um, deals with child care, deals with elder care, deals with community colleges. These are things that would benefit Ohioans as well, right? Well, Jake, everything would benefit Ohioans, I'm sure. But at what cost is always the question. Um, you know, you always have to say, how much can we spend? How much can we afford? And what is priority? It's like in your own own budget or any our state budget. You know, we, we can't deficit spend in Ohio. We don't want to be able to deficit spend. And so we have to make priorities. I spent the last two hours here uh, meeting with our team in regard to, you know, how we're going to spend the federal dollars that have already been uh, passed by Congress. And, um, you know, we're getting down to what's what is essential, you know, broadband. You know, we're going to spend money on broadband. We're going to spend money on uh, you know, sewers, water, I mean, basic things where we have parts of Ohio that really, really need need help in these areas. So it's all about priorities. And you, we can't do everything. You can't have everything. But I think there can be a very significant bill passed uh, in Congress in a bipartisan fashion. And I think there's something to be said to, you know, trying to pull people together on both sides of the aisle. You pointed out that the Senate is split. It's 50-50. Um, it's just, I think, good governing to be able to do that. And I think the president uh, can do that, but he's obviously not going to do it with the, the bill that he's presented. 
Your fellow Ohio Republican, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, the author of Hillbilly Elegy and, and uh, a Senate candidate uh, to take Rob Portman's seat, he's retiring, uh, he expressed on Twitter today uh, opposition to the uh, Biden-promoted idea of universal pre-K. He said, um, and I'm, I'm trying to uh, paraphrase him here, he, he, he said that what the federal government should be doing or what government should be doing is encouraging policies in which instead of both parents being able to work and thus the need for universal pre-K, uh, having the government support policies in which one parent would be home taking care of the kids. Uh, what's your take on his argument? Well, I think that's individual choice of families. And, you know, obviously what we want is people to have their choice uh, and their ability to work or not have one spouse work. I mean, you'd hope that the economy would be at that point, and that's what you would be ultimately looking for. But that's individual, ultimately individual family choices and how they how they work those things out. I mean, look, I'm optimistic uh, about what I'm seeing in Ohio, about our economy. Uh, you know, we're running under, significantly under the national unemployment. Uh, I think there's a great pent up um, uh, desire for people to travel, people to spend money, people to go out to restaurants and, and bars. You know, we've got 40% of our population now vaccinated in Ohio. And one of the things, you know, I tell people is, you know, you get that vaccination and, uh, you know, it's not only good for your health, but uh, it, it, it really gets you excited. I know when Fran and I got our vaccine, our second dose, and waited a couple of weeks, you know, we've been able now to go out and travel around the state and see people. So, you know, I think there's a real sense of optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we still have a variant out there uh, that is, is very troubling, but uh, I think people are optimistic. So I'm optimistic. You're, you're talking about the economy. I'm optimistic about Ohio's future and, and our economy. All right. Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Thanks, Jake. In our money lead, great news for the U.S. economy. Thanks to vaccinations, reopening businesses and the stimulus checks, by some measures, Biden is on track for the strongest market performance since JFK's first 100 days. The biggest indicator of economic activity, the GDP, grew faster than predicted in the first three months of this year, a whopping 6.4 percent, the biggest increase in growth since Ronald Reagan. CNN's Richard Quest joins us. Richard, uh, to what do we owe this economic upswing? Is it the, the president? Is it putting down the pandemic? What is it? It's both and more. I made a list, Jake, of the sort of things that are fueling the economy at the moment. You've got the stimulus spending that Governor DeWine was talking about, where the federal government and how the states are going to spend it. You've got the $120 billion a month in bond buying from the Fed, record low interest rates. You had the unemployment checks, the increased unemployment spending. You've got that pent-up demand that Ohio is talking about. Jake, if you take all of that and then you multiply it across the economy of the United States, you see why the U.S. economy is doing so well and people are talking about a boom year, that 2021 will be better than most expect. And, and Richard, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said yesterday that the economy won't be fully back for some time, at least not until the pandemic is over. How do we square Powell's characteristically sober warnings with this incredible first quarter growth we're seeing? 
Ah, you do it by passing his words, Jake. Yes, on the left hand, he said that there will be some time before the economy strength, substantially strengthened further. But the markets have chosen to focus on the good bit, in a sense, that the economy has shown improvement and the indicators have strengthened. Now, from a low base, which is where we began, I would choose to take his shown improvement and strengthening because they indicate where we're going. Let's not worry about how bad the thing gets, he's basically saying, before we start worrying about inflation or tapering on bond purchases. The train has left the station and is picking up speed, is what the Fed's telling us. Richard, before you go, quickly, what did you make of Biden uh, saying yesterday, this sweeping declaration, trickle-down economics has, has never worked? There are those who believe in it passionately and you can say till their dying breath that it does work or it doesn't work. This is one that the two sides, simply the Reaganomics versus the Bidenites, they will never agree. And I'm not getting in the middle. (laughs) Okay, Richard Quest, thank you so much. Brand new CNN polls on getting back to normal life after the pandemic and some surprising numbers on people who plan to get a vaccine. And after federal investigators search Rudy Giuliani's home, a grand jury subpoena in the investigation. Stay with us. New this hour in our politics lead, a brand new CNN poll that gauges Americans' willingness and unwillingness to get a COVID vaccine and the eagerness nationwide to ease restrictions so as to be able to return to a more public life, even, dare I say, a return to the office. Let's get right over to CNN political director David Chalian. David, Let's start with Americans and their willingness to get a vaccine. This is timely as we see vaccination rates starting to slow, which is alarming health officials. Right. Jake, let's look at the state of play as it is right now. According to this brand new CNN poll, looks very similar to the CDC data we talk about. 55 percent of Americans tell us in the poll they've received at least one dose of the vaccine. Forty five percent have not received one dose of the vaccine. We also ask folks, do you want to get the vaccine or are you hesitant to do so? Seventy one percent, nearly seven in ten in this poll say they've either gotten the vaccine or they want to get the vaccine. But twenty six percent. A quarter of the American adult population, according to these poll numbers, they don't want the vaccine and they're not going to try. This is the vaccine hesitancy group that concerns the administration, making sure that we get to herd immunity. And look how it breaks out by party, Jake. Among Democrats, 90 percent say yes, they've gotten the vaccine or they want to get the vaccine. Only 8% no. Independents, nearly 7 in 10, 68% say yes, they want the vaccine. But Republicans are more evenly divided. 51% say yes, they want the vaccine, they've tried to get it. 44% say no. Again, this is going to be the challenge for the administration. And this new CNN poll has surprising numbers on reopenings and, and who wants a vaccine before returning to to public life. Break down those results. Yeah. When you talk about whether or not people feel comfortable returning to their normal life, their regular routine, okay, among those that got the vaccine, 58% of vaccinated people feel comfortable returning to their routine today. 63% of those that want the vaccine would feel comfortable returning to their routine today. But how about this? The folks that don't want the vaccine at all, 87% of them, Well, they're ready to return to their routine uh, even without the vaccine and the fact uh, that they don't want it. You can also take a look at how this breaks down uh, in terms of whether or not a vaccine should be required to return and do some pretty key things that we do. So uh, in-person school attendance, uh, going to college, let's say, 49. 
and say, yes, you should have a vaccine to do that. 49% say no. How about to attend a sporting event or concert? 47% say yes, a vaccine should be required. A slim majority of Americans say no, 51%. You mentioned returning to the workplace, returning to the office. Again, 46% say yes, a vaccine should be required. But again, a slim majority, 52% say no. The one thing people seem pretty agreed upon is you should not need a vaccine to go to the grocery store. Only 26% of Americans say you should. And when you look at those that have been vaccinated or will get vaccinated and not, 67% of those vaccinated or will get vaccinated believe you should have a vaccine to go to school. 64% to attend a concert. 62% of the vaccinated or willing to go to the office say you should have a vaccine. And again, we see not so for grocery store, but those that don't want a vaccine, they don't believe you should have a vaccine to do any of these things, Jake. All right, David Chalian, thanks so much. Sure. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, now to talk about this. Sanjay, uh, President Biden has no real precedent uh, for this modern day pandemic uh, to this magnitude. The, the U.S. seems to be on the, on the back end of it. But what else do you think the Biden administration can do to help make the turn to get us out of this? Well, we, we do need to get, uh, you know, a, a larger percentage vaccinated. I think everyone has sort of realized that uh, the numbers are starting to, to sort of diminish because the, the percentages of people, as David was pointing out, that want the vaccine or say that they would be willing to get the vaccine, we're starting to get to those numbers, that percentage of at least first shots. So it doesn't, it's not that surprising that the numbers are starting to come down. So that's going to need to be a significant focus. But I think there's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, Jake, in the sense that Everyone talks about these variants, but we cannot be caught blindsided by these variants. It's going to be very important. And we talk about genetic sequencing, which is kind of like an early warning detection system for these variants. We weren't doing any of it, really, at the end of last year. We're doing a lot more of it now. More than 25,000 of these sequencings are being analyzed every week. But that's, that's going to need to be, uh, you know, de- that's going to need to be kept up for some time. So all of a sudden, a new variant is not becoming dominant with us not really knowing about it. And finally, Jake, I'll say that, you know, we're talking about this pandemic. Things are looking very good, but we do have to be thinking about tomorrow, a possible next pandemic and replenishing stockpiles, thinking about investing in public health. I know people's eyes glaze over when you say that, but part of the reason we got hit so hard is because we weren't ready in a way that we could have been had we invested in some of this preparation. In the new CNN poll that David just presented, 26 percent of those polled still do not want to get a vaccine, 26%. Can we reach herd immunity, a safe place for the entire country, if 26% of the country refuses? I, I think it's going to be really challenging. I mean, you know, th- there's, there's two things to sort of consider beyond the obvious. One is that there is a certain amount of immunity that exists out there from people who have been previously infected Uh, but have not received the vaccine. We don't exactly know what that number, what percentage that is, because many of those people were not tested. They may not even know that they have antibodies. But there is some immunity out there, and I think it's why even now we are seeing case rates go down, hospitalizations go down, deaths go down, because we're seeing the impact of of broad immunity. Not, Not herd immunity, but broad immunity. So we don't know. The second thing is, what is that percentage, right? What, what percentage of country do we really need to have immunity in order to get to what we call herd immunity? Well, it's a little bit of a moving target because it's based on the contagiousness of the virus. Like with something as contagious as measles, you require 90% of the population to have immunity. This isn't as contagious as measles, but some of these variants are more contagious. So that means the herd immunity target becomes a little bit of a moving one. 
you see what I'm saying here? You play catch up. If you keep inspiring mutants, get more and more mutants, you're going to have to get more of the country actually uh, having some sort of immunity. So right now what we're doing is we're going younger. 12 to 15-year-olds will likely have an authorized vaccine sometime soon. They're doing trials on even younger children than that. So ultimately, they're just dipping into younger populations to try and get broader protection. Many companies are creating plans to bring employees back to the actual physical workplace. This is obviously a touchy subject for many Americans who have now worked from home for a year. What can be done to convince people they should, they could, uh, that the, the office is safe? Well, you know, we do have real world data from places uh, around the world now, you know, that have been in sort of similar positions, have had, you know, broad uh, immunity, you know, broad vaccination numbers around the country and have started to bring people back to work. Frankly, Jake, even before the vaccine, there were places with good testing, good ventilation, you know, all all the things that we've talked about pre-vaccine where they could bring people back to work. So it is possible. I mean, we have the same conversation about schools I think there's a, there's a few main things. One is, what are you going to require in terms of vaccinations? Got to be transparent about that and defend that position. Are you still going to have testing available to give people another sort of sense of comfort that they're not surrounded by people who may carry the virus? And then focus on safety within the buildings. Ventilation in particular, so critically important. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. George Floyd's brother goes to Capitol Hill to push for policing reform. Could he bring Congress closer to passing a policing reform law in his brother's name? And people sickened in a possible invisible energy attack. Scary anywhere, but especially steps away from the White House. Stay with us. In our national lead today, a bipartisan group of lawmakers, including Republican Senator Tim Scott and Democratic Senator Cory Booker, just wrapped a meeting on policing reform. They're pledging to continue to meet, quote, until we get this done. Earlier today, the families of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and other victims of excessive force used by police met with senators on Capitol Hill. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now live from Capitol Hill. Ryan, President Biden said he wanted a bill on policing reform on his desk by the anniversary of George Floyd's death. That's just May 25th coming right up. Could, could that actually happen? Jake, there's no doubt that it's an ambitious timeline. And while the president would like to see it happen by then, uh, the senators and members of Congress that are working on this legislation are not holding themselves to that artificial deadline. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, who is a key player in all this, telling uh, me today that he's not worried about a deadline. He's worried about getting the legislation right. Uh, What I will say is that they do seem to be making progress. There have been bipartisan meetings on this in the past. Today, it was an extended group of both members of the House and the Senate, and they're hashing out these big issues that are stalling the negotiations right now. They remain hopeful that they can come up with a deal. The big question is, can they get it done by the end of May? And Ryan, tell us more uh, about the meetings this morning that the senators had with the families of, of George Floyd and Eric Garner. Well, they seem to be very powerful, Jake, and they met with both Republicans and Democrats, including a meeting with both Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. And what these families really wanted to do was emphasize to the senators that it is their family members that paid the price for the problems in policing across the country, and they want to see meaningful reform. Take a listen. We met for approximately an hour. Uh, They got to hear directly from the families whose blood will be on the legislation that is being proposed. They listened intensely. It got very emotional at times. And they 
promised them that they were going to try to make meaningful legislation in their family's name. So the question is, what does meaningful reform actually mean? And one of the questions we asked is, does it mean eliminating qualified immunity? Does it mean reforming Section 242, which has been a big holdup in these negotiations? One of the attorneys, Bakari Sellers, representing one of the families, told us simply, yes. Jake, we'll have to see if lawmakers respond. All right, Ryan, thanks so much. W. Kamau Bell returns to CNN for a new season of his show, United Shades of America. He travels the country talking to people about Policing, Black Lives Matter, COVID, so much more. That's Sunday night at 10 p.m. Coming up after the raid on Rudy Giuliani's uh, home and office in New York City, the charter member of the Trump Attorneys Under Investigation Club reacts. Why Michael Cohen says it's going to be a, quote, treasure trove for the feds. Stay with us. In the politics lead today, moments ago, we heard from Rudy Giuliani for the first time publicly since the feds raided his apartment and office in the Upper East Side of Manhattan yesterday. The investigation stems from Giuliani's lobbying work in Ukraine, sources tell CNN. This afternoon on the radio, Giuliani pushed back against some other reports saying that the warrant had nothing to do with his pressuring Ukrainian officials on behalf of President Trump. Nothing of the sort. The search warrant involves something totally opposite. Search warrant is one act of failing to register as a foreign, failing to file as a foreign agent, which is completely false, which I have been able, and I'm ready, willing, and able to prove is untrue for the last two years, which the Justice Department ignored. And uh, it involves my, they think, representing Ukrainians, not pressuring anyone. At least that's not charged. So let's at least know what we're talking about. So let's bring in Ellie Honig. He was an assistant U.S. attorney for the same Manhattan office currently investigating Giuliani's case. It's also the same office where Giuliani served as U.S. attorney himself way back uh, when. Uh, Ellie, what do you make of Giuliani's uh, defense today, his remarks? Well, it's standard Rudy Giuliani. It's standard denialism. And look, Rudy's entitled to the presumption of innocence. He's not yet been charged with a crime. But know this as a fact. The Southern District cannot go and get a search warrant just on a whim, just on a hunch. They have to prove probable cause. And a judge, a federal judge, has to agree. And you don't get to just go in as a prosecutor and say, hey, judge, we have probable cause. Take our word for it. You have to spell it out specifically what your evidentiary basis is to have probable cause that a crime was committed and you'll find evidence of that crime where you're searching. So we know that for sure. Today, we also heard from Michael Cohen, who was the personal attorney for Trump before Giuliani and, of course, went to jail. Uh, Here is Michael Cohen's reaction to the raid. Guess what? There's going to be a ton of stuff. I'm certain of it. There's going to be a ton of documentation and there's going to be a bunch of tweets and a bunch of texts and a bunch of God knows what else. And rest assured, Donald is not happy about this. We should note that Cohen is on house arrest for financial crimes in addition to Trump-related campaign finance charges. So you can consider his credibility for yourself. Do you think this is all about trying to pin Giuliani down on his lobbying activity in Ukraine? Is this more than just a paperwork crime? He failed to fill out a form? 
If I'm prosecuting this case, Jake, I really hope there is more than what we call a, a FARA offense, a Foreign Agent Registration Act. The crime there is representing a foreign interest without registering. I would not feel comfortable as a prosecutor going ahead with that as my lead charge or certainly my only charge. Is it a federal crime? Yes. Does it have jury appeal, though? Not much. It's really sort of a technicality more than anything else. So if I'm leading this case at the Southern District of New York, I either have or I'm hoping to get information of further crimes, perhaps financial crimes. Let's remember Lev Parnas, Igor, uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, they're charged with illegally funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars of illegal foreign campaign money into pro-Trump. If Rudy's tied into that, that's a much stronger lead. But the Farrah case by itself to me is not something I would feel strong leading with as a prosecutor. President Biden said today that he was not aware of the Fed's raid on Giuliani's uh, apartment and office. That, of course, doesn't mean he didn't know about the investigation. We've been reporting on this investigation since 2019, uh, for example. So there's that. It also doesn't mean that no one at the White House knew that this raid was going to happen. How much do you think the Department of Justice is keeping all of this from anyone at the White House? I mean, obviously, DOJ wants to be independent, but they don't want to be rogue, right? Correct. Uh, I believe and I hope, knowing the people who are now in charge of DOJ, that they're telling the White House nothing. They should not tell the White House anything. I'm sort of a purist and absolutist when it comes to DOJ. The White House should have nothing to do with criminal prosecution. That's for the good of DOJ. The last thing you need as a prosecutor is a president out there tweeting about running commentary on your cases, as we saw with the prior president. But it's also really for the good of the president and the White House. There's no good to come of the president getting involved in any way in decisions to prosecute or not prosecute. There's no law on this, Jake. It just comes down to norms and good government. But as a DOJ alum, I really hope DOJ, DOJ is keeping itself completely out of the White House. Giuliani's assistant, Joanne Zafonti, has been subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury next month. What could she add to the investigation into Giuliani's activities in Ukraine and, and whether or not he was registered as a, a foreign agent? So any communication obviously has two ends to it. And when you're investigating, you want to seek both ends. So you get Rudy's phone, you execute a search warrant on Rudy's phone, but you also want to see who may be on the other end of that. I think that's why the SDNY went in and searched Victoria Tunsing, this other person, the assistant. The assistant may be able to tell you anything. Administrative assistants can be really valuable sources of evidence. So it doesn't surprise me that the SDNY is looking at her and questioning her as well. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our national lead today, the same so-called invisible attack overseas in recent years may have now happened twice on U.S. soil. CNN has confirmed federal agencies are investigating at least one case just steps from the White House. The victims are often U.S. government personnel, diplomats, CIA operatives, a national security official, all out of nowhere coming down with debilitating symptoms such as their ears popping or vertigo, pounding headaches, nausea. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, there's now a multi-agency effort to find out if a bad foreign actor could be to blame. It's called Havana syndrome for where the strange, debilitating attacks against U.S. personnel were first noticed. Now, sources telling CNN about at least two more on American soil. Similar mysterious incidents, including one late last year right near the White House. Thank you for your 
attention on this issue. It's critically important. The country's top intelligence official today saying she is focused on the attacks, believed to be the result of directed microwaves. The Pentagon is also investigating. Multiple sources telling CNN that defense officials briefed Congress earlier this month, telling lawmakers that the White House incident in November happened near the grassy oval area known as the Ellipse, just south of the White House. An official from the National Security Council was sickened. Another incident, first reported by GQ, happened across the Potomac River in Arlington, Virginia in 2019, also seemingly directed at another White House staffer. Similar attacks have struck U.S. diplomats and CIA officials, not just in Cuba, but China and Russia as well, including Mark Polymeropoulos, a former senior CIA officer who says he was hit with an attack while visiting the Russian capital in 2017. I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night um, with an incredible case of vertigo. You know, the room was spinning. Um, I wanted to throw up. Polymeropoulos served in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Because of the Moscow attack, he was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and had to retire from the CIA. You know, I've had a headache every day since that night in Moscow. It's never gone away day and night. A study this year by the National Academy of Sciences found the most likely cause of the symptoms was directed pulsed radio frequency energy. Symptoms include ear popping, vertigo, pounding headaches, and nausea. Alongside the Pentagon, the State Department and CIA have also launched investigations. I will make it an extraordinarily high priority um, to get to the bottom of who's responsible for the attacks. And who is responsible, Jake, remains a major question. U.S. officials say that it could be Russia. It could also be China. They simply don't know. I want to underscore, Jake, how extraordinary an incident here, this close to the White House uh, at the Ellipse, would be. This is the Ellipse, as we mentioned, just south of the White House. You can see it right there. This is one of the most secure places in the country. You have U.S. Secret Service, U.S. Park Police, uh, Metropolitan Police from Washington, D.C., and yet a White House staffer may have been targeted just steps from the White House. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. The moves that more and more states are making that impact one of the most divisive issues in America. Stay with us. In our national lead, President Biden making a push for Congress to pass sweeping restrictions on gun ownership and using his first joint address to Congress to call out Republican senators for not supporting ideas such as background check loopholes. Right now, there's a pa- closing them. Right now, there's a patchwork of laws that varies from state to state and deep political divisions about the issue, as CNN's Erica Hill explains in the second installment of our series on guns in America. It's the first time in American history that the Supreme Court has defined gun rights under the Second Amendment to the Constitution. That pivotal 2008 decision, District v. Heller, marking a major shift in the U.S. In that case, the Supreme Court held for the first time that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms for certain private purposes, like self-defense. While many Americans had long interpreted their rights that way, now the highest court in the land agreed. The Second Amendment was not just about organized militias. Yet more than a decade later, the nation feels increasingly divided on gun rights. Right now, because everything is so polarized, People don't take a deeper look into understanding the why. This is really about people wanting to keep themselves and their families and their loved ones safe um, and choosing different ways to go about that. Paths that often fall on well-worn party lines. 
Despite broad support nationally for background checks, bills that would require them for all sales and increase the waiting period remain stalled in Washington. But states are busy. Nearly 20 now have extreme risk or red flag laws, which allow law enforcement to temporarily take a person's firearms if there's concern they may harm themselves or others, including Indiana, where it was used to confiscate a gun from the 19-year-old who killed eight people at this FedEx facility earlier this month. But it didn't stop him from buying more weapons. I think it's the panacea to all these issues. It's not. What it is is a good start where there's a number of loopholes. After studying mass shootings in more than 170 countries, Professor Adam Lankford says those efforts can still make a difference. Um, These individuals are often planning their attacks in advance, months or years in advance. That means we have a long window of opportunity uh, to prevent them from attacking. If we empowered the FBI or law enforcement to prevent firearm purchases, Through red flag laws and extreme risk protection orders, they may still have the motive, but they wouldn't have the opportunity. That would save some lives. Also on the rise, so-called permitless carry laws, which have passed in 19 states, eliminating concealed carry permits and, in many cases, training requirements, too. 20 years ago, Vermont was the only state to allow permitless carry. It's not just one thing, rights or regulation. It's a question of which kinds of regulation fit and which kinds work. More states are also protecting their laws. 45 states prohibit local officials from passing stricter regulations than those at the state level, raising questions about whether one size can fit all. I think people are starting to understand that gun rights interact with and can sometimes threaten other people's constitutional rights and interests. Not just rights on one side and policy on the other, but it's actually rights and constitutional interests all around. Now, after largely avoiding gun rights cases for the last decade, the Supreme Court said this week in its next term it will take up a case, Jake, that could potentially redefine where Americans can bring their guns and how that's regulated. Jake? All right, Erica, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The latest installment of Guns in America. Coming up, can he help sell Congress on President Biden's multi-trillion dollar plan and vision? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is here. And CNN goes live inside India, where the COVID crisis is so severe, oxygen is being sold on the black market. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.